Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Um, <laughs> to say this has been a weird uh, spring uh, would be an understatement, of course. Uh, to say the last couple of weeks have been extraordinarily uh, strange and out of the ordinary is, of course, a, a shared experience we all have. There are decades where nothing happens and then weeks when decades happen. So said Vladimir Lenin, and he was absolutely right. Uh, I know a bunch of you because you've emailed me and you've tweeted at me and, uh, you know, sent me other messages have I said, you know, Chuck, uh, what do you have to say? Like, come on out and, and release a podcast. Like what's going on? Like, where's the podcast? I keep waiting for strong towns insight on this time. And, and it's interesting because while I do have a, a lot of thoughts in my head and I do think there's a lot of intersection between, um, you know, what we're doing at Strong Towns and our project, the, you know, the Strong Towns movement and all the things that are going on today in society. I, I think there's a lot of overlap. I, I've always been hesitant to view what we're doing in the context of, you know, current events. Um, I, I've always been reluctant to uh, or, or reticent to. We've, we've done this at times, but I, I've been reticent to, you know, hook our wagon, good or bad, to you know the current events, the, the the big news item, the thing that's going on, um, and it's not to say that we're you know above it or above the heated passions of the moment or what have you, uh, but a, a lot of what we do is you know is trying to get people to to stop to to let their rational selves come through to, in the metaphor of the elephant and the rider, uh, to a- allow the writer to redirect the passions of the elephant in a more productive direction. Um, that's hard to do in the heat of the moment. Um, I also just, you know, as a side note, because y'all are friends of mine and you ask these things and seem to care when I tell, tell you about it. Um, I got, I got kicked out of the office that I was in the office uh, with the nice train that went by and it was the old uh, Northern Pacific center in Brandon, Minnesota. I got, I got the boot. Um, I could go through all the reasons why, but, um, I, I wasn't like singled out. Everybody left, got the boot. When I left the office in March, it was full. Um, all the spaces on the second floor of the, what's known as the clock tower building, the main office building there at the rail yard were full. And that was the first time in my entire time at, you know, over a decade at the rail yard that things were full. And when I got back, there were only two of us left. Most of them were in the wedding business, catering, you know, that, that kind of thing. And they're all wiped out. They're just gone. And and I don't even know what happened to them. Like, I don't know where they are. I don't know if they will return. Like, I I don't, I don't know what happened to them, but it was myself and one other long-term tenant and the owner of the building who, you know, we could, we could do a, a podcast on this. Uh, in a very unstrong town's way, I think got himself uh, in a little bit of a debt problem. Uh, recently purchased the whole entire site, poured a lot of money into it, and now is uh, you know trying to conserve cash. And it costs allegedly, and I, I I don't I don't deny that this is probably true. It costs thousands of dollars to heat and cool our building with only two tenants and little likelihood of adding any more. Um, he felt it was better to not have anybody in there. So I was told I had to be out at the end of the month. Uh, in the meantime, you know, it's been 90 degrees here in Minnesota. Uh, you know, for us, this is brutally hot, like brutally hot. I realize 
for the rest of the country, this isn't, but you know, we think 40 degrees is warm. And so when you start to get regularly into the eighties and nineties with some humidity in the air, uh, we just all like, what is going on? We're all melting. Um, so I'm in the second floor office of this building with no heat, I'm sorry, no air conditioning and, uh, it's just brutal. And so I was fortunate enough to get a new office. Uh, I'm actually moved to what is the, called the Franklin Arts Center here in Brainerd. It's a middle school. I went to junior high here. I went to eighth grade and ninth grade. I actually met my wife in this building. Uh, if you believe that and you should, cause it's true. Um, I live about four or five blocks from four and a half blocks from here, I think is what I figured out. And so it's, it's closer. It's a nice, easy commute. It's a gorgeous building. I've got tons of space. I've got a really nice recording studio that I've been setting up and getting working and all that. And, uh, you know, so there've been a little bit of transition in doing that. And that bought me some time in not having to come and chat with you about thoughts that I think are un, you know, unprepared. I'm going to share with you today, uh, a conversation that I had as part of a radio program I do here in Minnesota called dig deep, uh, dig deep is with KXE, uh, a local radio station out of grand rapids, which is a, a little less than two hours North of where I'm at. Uh, I've done this program for a number of years now. I do it because it is a, a model or an example of two people who uh, politically don't vote the same are on, you know, what, what I think in our punditry class would call the opposite side of the political spectrum. It's those two people having a conversation, me and a friend of mine named Aaron Brown, a guy I have a lot of respect for and I really like, and you'll see that in the conversation. And if you Subscribe to the Dig Deep podcast. You will get these once a month or once every six weeks or whenever we record them. Um, but we try to have civil conversations about current events and, and try to find places where we, we, we lean into agreement, basically. And so where do we agree? Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not hesitant to point out where we don't, but, but we try to not belabor that or score cheap points, but actually, you know, have a civil conversation, something that is very rare today. Of course, the conversation this month is about George Floyd. We are both Minnesotans, both have very strong feelings about this, both, you know, have a certain amount of shame at the people around the world looking at our state right now in a way that, you know, we are not proud of. Um, and so we had a conversation. So you, you're going to hear here, uh, you're, you're going to hear in this conversation two Minnesotans uh, from small town, rural areas with uh, Heidi Holton being the kind of moderator in it, you know, introducing us and, and laying out the program. This is her program on KXE. If you enjoy this program, uh, head over to KXE.org and subscribe to Dig Deep, the Dig Deep podcast. Uh, we do this show like every month, every six weeks, somewhere in that time frame. And there's quite a back catalog there. If you've not been listening, there's a there's a lot of conversation that you might find interesting. Uh, with that, thanks everybody. I, I hope, oh geez, I, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're you're safe. Um, I hope your life is is all together. I hope the people that uh, you know and care about are are healthy. And you know, I I, I hope that uh, we can all be together again soon. Take care, everyone, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. 
Welcome to Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE. It's a conversation between Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone. I'm Heidi Holton. I'm news director at KEXE, KBXE, and I'm producer of Dig Deep. Each time that I gather with Chuck and Aaron, whether it's in the studio or remotely, like the conversation you will hear ahead, I listen deeply. I learn from these thinkers from their different perspectives of conservative and liberal and how they tell the story of now in the context of the past. I may not always agree with Chuck and Aaron, but I think and I listen and I find a broader context for this moment in time. Dig Deep features Strong Town CEO and founder Chuck Marone and Minnesota Brown and Great Northern Radio Show founder Aaron Brown. Let's listen together. Chuck Marone begins this conversation about the place we're in with a pandemic and the killing of George Floyd and the protests and race riots. The tumult and the disconnect that we've talked about for a long time on this program, inequality, how this manifests in our communities, in our neighborhoods, the tensions around the inability of our systems of governance to actually work through these issues in ways that not only are productive, but but satisfying at the end of the day. We've been living through a great period of dysfunction, and that extends beyond just the last three years of, of the Trump presidency would have been particularly tumultuous, but really back for a couple of decades now, you know, ever since really the end of the Cold War, the things that kind of united us in common purpose, I mean, around a common enemy, uh, those moments have been few and far between. And we remember the first Gulf War, I do. The second, the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent Gulf War after that as times of rare unity. And so now, you know, you throw this pandemic into it, this very clumsy response I mean, you, you can be partisan as you want, but I think what is very clear is that our systems of responding to this have been clumsy in the same way that our response to Hurricane Katrina was clumsy in a way that, you know, I think we're all kind of embarrassed with and look at as like just a sign of futility. You add to that the fact that millions of people have been instantly thrown out of work, have been economically dislocated uh, with those in employment feeling very unstable and insecure while simultaneously the stock market goes up and up and up seemingly against all you know gravity that would naturally pull it down and the whole narrative of the haves and the have-nots is just this tinder laid on top of this heap of like raw flash stuff and the whole george floyd thing as horrific as it was in the moment, I think maybe remembered much in the way, hopefully not to this extent, but but maybe in the way that Gabriella Princip assassinating an Archduke, you know, set off something much greater that was really just the result of all this accumulated tinder that needed to be worked out. Uh, the George Floyd situation may wind up being that and kind of feels like that kind of a moment. There's the old quote, you know, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen and we are living through one of those times when decades are are happening each day last week felt like a week of news or more i very much agree with everything chuck just said we've been talking about these themes uh these themes are at the heart of american politics rarely discussed 
in the way we talk about them, but but you know when you talk about the immigration and economic uh, impact of immigration and cultural impact of immigration and how that's been a part of this, that's in there. You talk about the top two percent has the wealth, the bottom ninety eight percent does the work and gets relatively less of the of the pie. That's all part of this discussion that we've been having and and how people feel about it, whether they're a conservative rural person or a liberal. Uh, a metropolitan person, um, whether you're a person of color or whether you are a, a member of a of a privileged class, you still hear these themes seen completely differently from whatever vantage point that you're in. Come out. It's just all bubbled over. The historical parallel that I thought of, and it, I'm a little biased because I had just done some research, and this is in the project I'm working on, because the, the father of the guy I'm researching arrived in New York City in the midst of the, the draft riots of uh, the 1860s, during the Civil War, when the city of New York was put under martial law. Like the current uprisings and protests across this country, those riots would have been 1863. Those were racially motivated riots as well. It was different than these ones in that it was Irish Americans mostly, which was a huge part of the population of New York at that time, uh, fed up with the unfairness of the system that they've entered as, as new citizens or as new people, as immigrant workers, lashed out both at the people who were they felt were oppressing them, in this case the government, the city, all institutions that that stood above them, but they also lashed out against African Americans who lived in the city, who they believed were taking their jobs, were going to lower wages, and all of the other racial tropes of the time. It skipped out of the the bounds of how it began, which was as a draft riot. They were rioting against the mandatory conscription, the the draft that would send men who couldn't afford to pay their way out uh, into the Union Army to go die in the South because, I mean, half the people who went died. They, they rioted against the draft, but they also invaded black neighborhoods and burned them down and, and, and killed and lynched and destroyed people's homes. They pulled people from their homes for no reason. Talk about what happens on the street. They were going into the houses, into the buildings. I remember cheering Tiananmen Square and the Tiananmen Square uprisings. I think it was late 80s, maybe it was 91. It was somewhere near the end of my high school period of time. And and I remember seeing like Time Magazine would come out once a week and I would always purchase Time Magazine because I wanted, I still have the ones from Tiananmen Square. They were so impactful because here were people by our narrative in the West were deeply oppressed were not allowed to express themselves, were part of an authoritarian regime who were standing up and in an idealistic way, were using the Statue of Liberty and other visualizations of America as their call for freedom. And I remember being very inspired by that. Like, look, not only do they seek something that we take for granted, but they're using us as their symbolism for good, for what they're aspiring to. And I remember feeling very... Um, both humbled and inspired by that. I remember being appalled then when the troops were brought in from the countryside, literally like they couldn't get the troops from the major cities to open up fire on people within the city. They were like brethren. They like, you know, wouldn't do it basically. 
And there were even reports of some of the troops joining in with the protesters in Tiananmen Square. And so what the leaders did at the time uh, was they brought in fresh troops from the countryside, people who were not acclimated to, you know, the urban life or what have you, people who were more anonymous uh, to each other. And that was how they did the crackdown. And I remember just like the gut punch of that, like, you know, we forsaken these people, we've given them up, we've lost them. In that context, it's really been circling around in my brain how this much must look like from foreign perspectives. The Chinese have been very vocal in taunting us over the last couple of weeks. And, and I think in kind of a karmic way, uh, you know, we did the same thing with them. Our propaganda, you know, beamed into them after Tiananmen Square. Their propaganda is, is beaming into us. And, you know, I, I think hopefully maybe the difference is that we actually, in, instead of, and I'm assuming they ignored it, but instead of like moving on from it, I think the propaganda strikes home because it's very telling. The scenes from America today look a lot like the scenes from China in the late 80s, early 90s, at a period of time when, you know, they were seeking freedoms, uh, freedoms that, you know, now seem kind of elusive for us as well. We, we often think of the Stasi, the CCP in, in China as being police states, as states where, you know, the government's going to show up in riot gear and they're going to read your emails and they're going to monitor your phone calls. And, you know, oh, we don't do that here in America. We're in 2020 and we do all that as like routine matters of business. I find it very interesting to watch protests that are going on. I saw a scene from Amsterdam yesterday. And I'm like, why, what are people in Amsterdam doing protesting at, at this moment? Like, what is it about George Floyd and the militarization of the police and the kind of institutional racism in our systems of justice? What is it that would call out someone from Amsterdam into the streets? And I may be wrong about this, but I'm left with this profound feeling of sorrow that they believed at some point in the past in the idealism of America as well. They looked at us in a sense as a beacon of not perfection, uh, but of people with morals and virtues that were worthy of standing up for. And, you know, those things, if not gone, seem to be certainly under deep assault and deep questioning. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sure that they stand in solidarity with oppressed peoples. And I'm sure there's a, a lot of, you know, just weird there with you kind of going on. But but I do think that at least some of it has to be the fact that, you know, the, the things that we hold ourselves to or aspire to, we seem to not just systematically be underperforming them, but but in some ways like leaning into that, like becoming the worst of what we have pointed to in others you know, we seem to be doing this. And it, it you know, it goes back to, I, I think of things like, you know, the torture in the second Gulf War, things that we said, like we would never do after 9-11, we would never lock up Japanese in internment camps the way we did after World War II. Yet on 9-12, we were locking up anyone who was six degrees of separation from a Muslim in camps. And we had this debate in this country. And the thing is, it was largely unresolved. I think you're seeing the cumulative effect of that kind of uh, diminishment of American. And I don't think it's too strong. I was going to say prestige, but I, I think that it's not prestige. It's moral leadership is what it is. 
uh, I think you're seeing the diminishment of our moral leadership. Um, it's hard to say that America is a good country today. And I say that as someone who's served in the military and, and flies the flag in front of my house and wants to believe in these things. But whether it's the way our police acts, whether it's the way that the top leader in our executive office tweets and purports himself, whether it is all the discussion from the top to the bottom, just the dysfunction of it. I asked the question the other day of a good friend of mine, point to me an institution that you believe in, an institution that if you in your, in your heart held a belief and this institution came out and said, you should be thinking this, and it's the opposite of what you believe, that your reaction would be, well, let me ponder that. You know, that they, they make a good point. Like, I have enough faith in them as an institution to question my own beliefs. Name that institution. I'm Catholic. I don't even know as a Catholic church is that institution today. I think we have a hard time. We lament the loss of a Walter Cronkite, but Walter Cronkite was nothing more than an, a trusted institution. Where is that today? And I don't know that it exists. And that's a, that's a scary thing for a, a country as divided as we are. That's Chuck Marone. He is in conversation with Aaron Brown for Dig Deep on member-supported KAXE, KBXE. This is a conversation about this time of pandemic, this time of protest over the murder of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis and racism and, and police brutality. I asked Chuck and Aaron about Minnesota at the epicenter of this worldwide protest of racism. Can I take that first? Because I want Aaron to be able to go on on this. I think he has more to say on this than I do. I think that the juxtaposition of not only Minnesota nice, which is something we take pride in, and I immediately felt shame over when the George Floyd situation happened, but you've got one of the most consistently liberal states, one of the most consistently liberal cities, dominated for decades by uh, you know, progressive politicians and progressive politics, a police force that has done all the, you know, quote unquote, right things in terms of liberal reform, putting people of color in senior positions, empowering them to make change. Yet here we are. And, and, and I think we have to ask the question, are the things that we've kind of been telling ourselves, not only about ourselves, but about what our project was for making things better, are we just fooling ourselves with that? Is that just a lie wrapped in a lie? That is an easy segue for my friend Aaron, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, that's kind of close to what I was going to start talking about. I have talked about and joked about Minnesota Nice before, and it always it's interesting hearing different reactions. If you say that Minnesota Nice is actually just a veneer placed over a very suspicious people who are... Uh, deeply concerned about outsiders coming in and who are a little higher on the horse than your average person, ruled moralistically by their uh, their conscience in, in such a way, and that Minnesota Nice was a big, friendly Fargo, the movie Fargo smile on all that. A lot of Minnesotans, just as they reacted to the movie Fargo, will react very hostily to that, with a lot of hostility towards that, that viewpoint. I've had that experience, even just joking about it. Some people will say, oh, the people, I grew up in Minnesota and the people in my hometown would have given me the shirt off their backs and they were so kind and, and, and friendly and, and, and genuine. They, they loved me and, and all this. And I think, and I, this is what I was kind of thinking when Chuck was talking in the earlier point, 
was, I've said, I think on this podcast that we live in this age of marketing where the story we tell ourselves is is the truth and that the truth is something that is either convenient or inconvenient to our story. But we generally don't concern ourselves with the truth. We generally concern ourselves with the story, the, the product. The product is our job. The product is the way we live our life. It's the things we buy and the things that we think are necessary to live. That's why people in a dilapidated small town in northern Minnesota will say, I just can't wait until maybe a target comes here or something and makes this place better. It's this kind of strange story of marketing that makes people think this way. Well, Minnesota Nice is marketing. It's a tag that you can put on our our actually rather strange passive-aggressive nature that we have. Going back to the, again, this is just speaking of the white story of Minnesota, which which is an immigrant story, a Scandinavian and German story, uh, mostly, though there are others. But the cultural Im- import of those of those cultures and the way those cultures reacted to the prairie, the woods, and the urban environment of early Minnesota created this this sort of Chuck describes it as progressive. Even when it was Republican, it was often very progressive. When the Republican had the progressive movement, um, you know, the Republican Party began in a very different ideological place than than it's at now, just as the Democratic Party did. In many ways, they were reversed back in the early days of statehood. But so so we we live in this state of this veneer that that white, the white part of our state really got to experience. Now, Native Americans didn't get to experience Minnesota nice because very early on in the arrival of all these settlers, their land was taken and they were relegated to reservations and they had a very different experience with the state than than white Minnesotans had. Ditto during and after the Civil War when when black Americans came to St. Paul up the river from the south and tried to establish new lives outside of slavery, their experience was also that of the outsider, the permanent outsider. I think every immigrant story starts with these immigrants were discriminated against or looked down upon when they started. But how many generations does it take for you to be considered no longer an immigrant, but you're you're an American now. And the experience historically that black Minnesotans had, I mean, they, they, how many generations has it been? I think if you go to Rondo in St. Paul, they would tell you, we're still counting. We don't know when when we will be considered equal Americans in the eyes of the power structure in this state, even though it's progressive. You know, but I watched this happen on the Iron Range. I grew up in DFL politics. I'm, I'm, I'm painted, Chuck and I, I don't know where we are today ideologically. Uh, we're all over the map maybe. But I grew up in the DFL and I was, I'm described here as the liberal and I am. Grew up in Iron Range DFL circles. Uh, I remember knocking doors for Paul Wellstone. I remember Ann Winia uh, <laughs> ran for Senate in 94 in the, in the Republican wave year and got beat. Um, by Rod Grams that year. I remember uh, the range voted for these very liberal people. And I thought that meant that my friends and neighbors, oh, they were liberal, they're inclusive, you know, they're... But in reality, people are concerned with the power structures around them and, and surviving and thriving within them. 
And even if you want to affiliate it with a liberal cause, racial equality, the Martin Luther King, the sanitized version of Martin Luther King's teachings, for instance, that passes for a liberal thought on the matter of race in this country, the actual reality that they shot Martin Luther King, that he had himself by the end of his life realized that there were such huge you know barriers to the the equality he had sought and that he was even becoming more radicalized if you want to use that word uh by the end of his life and that may have had something to do if you want to get into conspiracies with with why he died uh if you look at that if you look at the fact that it's very easy to say well we're all the same or what what i often hear in my community i don't see color as a phrase you often hear, that is a very dubious statement. And I know people might mean it when they say it, but I think that's almost worse than seeing color because I think there's a reality that, and I'm not going to say like, oh, I know what black people go through. This is what we, we were just talking before we started recording all of the performance-based things that white people can do during times like these to make themselves seem really well connected. I'll say that I'm a white guy from the range and I grew up on a junkyard and that I have about half my family who I've heard say some really awful things about the subject of race and another half that didn't like that they said those things but are frankly just confused on the matter of race and I'd put myself in that category. I don't really know what it's like to not be a white guy. I know that I've probably gotten away with some things um, uh, with a with even a, a wry smile from a law enforcement officer uh, than um, that I know I wouldn't have gotten away with uh, if I were anything other than a white man. So that that's something on my mind. Uh, but I feel like we really overstate like, oh, I was a, I'm a Democrat or I'm a progressive, or maybe you're a conservative, but you are a Christian or you are, uh, an, you know, someone who's experienced the world and you understand that it's not right to have, to look down on other races or groups. But I, I just don't think we really understand. I think we're buying into the marketing that, hey, the sixties, a lot of progress, Martin Luther King, there's some beer commercials that show how people really are getting along great now. And um, it, and so you buy that as marketing. Or we elected Barack Obama, who I support and supported. But, but that was, I think, kind of a, you know, look what we did. We did that. Come on. Isn't that great? Um, there's no problems anymore. But I think it only showed that if you look at the, from this from a historical standpoint, like the way people will look at our time when we are old or dead, uh, people will look back and say, boy, America elected Barack Obama. But from that moment on, the, the, the racial problems that existed in the culture of the United States of America only seemed to get worse in a, in a way because he drew out the true feelings of a minority, perhaps. I don't know. We'll see, um, of people who couldn't handle that level of cultural change, the acceptance of a, of a black man as president, for instance, or changes in the acceptance of 
the, the norms in who are the leaders of this country and our companies and our organizations, our institutions. Looking at it historically, we will see that this is still America's original sin, the sin of slavery and the sin of trying to keep a form of slavery after the end of the Civil War. And Minnesota, I think, is a, is a flashpoint. We were the first, you know, the first to offer troops to fight the Civil War, uh, to put down the South and their treason. But we were not doing it to protect the interests of the slaves, of the people who were held in bondage. We were doing it for power. And that is the problem. People want to preserve the power structure when it benefits them. And that's where we are. That's Aaron Brown for Dig Deep on KEXE, KBXE. Part two is available now at our website, kexe.org, where member-supported radio in northern Minnesota. Coming up, it is part two of our Dig Deep conversation with Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone. It ran on June 8th of 2020. We talked a few days before that. And Chuck and Aaron are commenting on the things we are living through right now, including power and racism and police. This is how the first part of the conversation ended with Aaron Brown. Minnesota, I think, is a, is a flashpoint. We were the first, you know, the first to offer troops to fight the Civil War, uh, to put down the South and their treason. But we were not doing it to protect the interests of the slaves, of the people who were held in bondage. We were doing it for power. And that is the problem. People want to preserve the power structure when it benefits them. And that's where we are. I think that's a very interesting thought in the sense that, you know, I've, I'm reading this book called The Great Leveling. And it's about how you can think of it as wealth imbalances, but I think there's also a correlation of power imbalances, obviously, have been leveled throughout history. And both the optimistic and the depressing part of the book coalesce around the fact that these levelings have happened. These great periods of inequality have have occurred. And then there's always been a leveling that has happened that has essentially like fixed that power imbalance. I have looked at, you know, myself, I I won't deny I do this from a, a place of privilege. So we don't have to, you know, you don't have to hammer me people listening on that conversation. I have looked at the black experience in America as one of pushing towards one of these levelings. And it's been my kind of thought or my contention that what we ultimately would experience, and I think like Black Lives Matter is part of this, is actually more tension, more disgust, uh, more pushback over incidents that maybe... I mean, for sure, a century ago would have just been tolerated. 50 years ago would have been looked at as, well, that's progress. And now we're talking about microaggressions, getting teachers kicked out of classrooms for them. In some ways, if you look at it through a strictly like conservative lens, you're kind of pushing back on each thing. I've tried to step back and look at it from a historic standpoint and recognize that the way revolutions happen is not the peasants uprising. The peasants uprising are easy to put down. You you just go and slaughter peasants. I mean, that's what historically despotic systems have done. Where revolutions happen is when people with a little bit of power or with growing amounts of power overthrow people with larger power bases. It's often the 
the lieutenants and the captains that mutiny, not the enlisted soldiers. And so part of what we've seen, and this is a narrative of progress, but also, you know, difficulty. So I'm not trying to wish away or, or pretend it doesn't exist, the difficulty. But a lot of what we see today is a result of the fact that Black Americans, former slaves, have a lot more power and respect and authority and capital and access to things than they did 50 years ago. And that has given a greater platform for discontent and unrest. In that sense, I kind of have always embraced the Black Lives Matter movement. This is the logical outcome of people getting together and pushing back on things with power. And we should expect that when the systems are oppressive or disrespectful, that people who gain a certain amount of power will push back on it. And I think it's very healthy in that sense. I think the downside of the great leveling, and this is the depressing part of this book, is that the book goes to great lengths to point out that the only things that have really truly leveled huge inequality have been things like disease, war, mutiny, and like overthrow, famine, all these things that like no one wants to live through. And so I feel like the challenge for us in this time is, is not to, and, and I think conservatives have a tendency to do this, to overreact to something like a statement like America is founded on white supremacy and America is an apartheid country. I, I get where those statements come from and I get how there is more than a sliver of validity to those assertions. Yet I started this whole thing by saying I look at America as a system of governance focused on equality, focused on justice, focused on equal treatment before the law. And if we can get to a point where we can appeal to those things in a broader sense and demonstrate how they're not being, you know, we're not living the morals that we say we are. We're, in Minnesota, we're not living the Minnesota nice. That is the veneer we're putting over top of something that is a lie. Do we want to embrace the lie or do we want to embrace the veneer? Do we want to seek to become our better selves? I would like to think that we could make that transition without pestilence, without famine, without war, without an overthrow of the government, without people dying in the streets. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I think that if we truly want that transition to happen, we have to be willing to kind of think differently about things. And I think from a conservative lens, I would say we need to desperately reform. Uh, I, I don't, what I don't want to do is I don't want to make this conversation political, but, but I, I do think that one of the things that we've kind of coalesced here, at least Aaron and I have around, is the need to empower people locally to solve problems and work together and build communities. That has a racial tension in itself. Because an all-white, rural, affluent community or what have you will have different resources than an, an inner-city, you know, minority-dominated community may have. But I think the operative word to me is empowerment. If you go to the core assertions of the Black Lives Matter movement, to me, they sound very conservative. They're very much about, we don't want to be dominated by outside forces. We want to be able to assert our own future. We want to be able to control, in a sense, our own bodies, our own places, our own communities, and, and be able to, you know, have that be our base of power. That's a deeply conservative, and I would, I would propose a deeply American point of view. 
I wish we could find a way to get to that, but it would require a lot of people giving up a lot of power. And those things often don't happen without a lot of pain involved. Right. It's almost impossible to avoid the the pain. I'll just start by saying that Chuck and I have generally fallen back to our, our, our safe place is talking about the way our communities can take care of themselves in the absence of any other leadership, should take care of themselves, should be proactive and take care of the people using every tool available to them. And a lot can be done with just some good people in a small place trying to do some good. I think we've always agreed about that, and we disagree about some other things. And there are plenty of disagreements around the country right now about how these protests and associated events have have played out. I think, though, Chuck did bring up, and, and I would reference, if you want to talk about specifics, why Minnesota, why Minneapolis, I think you have to look at the local issue breakdown that, that exemplified this now international issue. Minneapolis Police Department is among the, all the big city police departments in the country, one of the most dominated by people, officers, staff, who do not live in Minneapolis. They, they don't live in the city. 92% of them live outside the city of Minneapolis. Some of them quite a bit out of Minneapolis. They live in the suburbs, the outer ring suburbs. My father, there's a Minneapolis police officer who lives near my father in Chisago County, which is in the 8th Congressional District, who drives into the city. And he comes home at night and he has a barbecue with his family by the lake in this idyllic people with horse pastures and riding crops and, and, and so um i'm not saying it's a nice place i'm not uh, i don't mean to brag on it too much it's a it's a lovely place and lovely people in chisago county but it's not minneapolis and the prevailing attitude is often officers and people who talk about going into minneapolis and they talk about it like like they're soldiers off to war every day they're soldiers off to war to go into this war zone where there's drugs and crime and gangs and people who need, frankly, need their skulls thumped. And when that's your attitude, even if it's subtle, even if it's just, and maybe it's a lived experience because police officers never get to deal with the finest members of a community. Uh, 90% of the time they're dealing with people who are in the throes of addiction or criminal behavior or both. And, and, you know, that affects your perception. So, so police officers get that much credit because it's really hard to get that input in your life and not have that affect your attitude. But when you don't live in the community, because listen, I have had encounters with police officers through my life that were changed by the fact that my kid went to school with their kid. They, they, they're a person that I remember from school. I'll tell you this, just, just as a brief aside, I used to keep a clip-on tie in my car because I would get pulled over coming home from these far-flung council meetings by rural cops. And if I was wearing a tie, they wouldn't give me a ticket. And if I wasn't, I would inevitably get a ticket. I had like a tie thing. And I'm, seriously, this would happen over and over and over. So yeah, I'm, I'm, there's no doubt that this happens. Yeah. Again, a lot of blame you want to people want to throw a lot of blame on the individual officers i want to i want to give the individual officers a break though for a minute for now and say that we have a systemic problem when your police force 
is external to your city and its communities. And that was evident, you know, when, um, when we saw the death of George Floyd and when we saw the reaction to the riots uh, or to the peaceful protests that then caused, I mean, we'll be, there will be books and books and books on, on what happened here. And I, I can't say with any certainty how, how the protests, the riots, the looting, the fires. I, right now sitting here, I don't think we know that. I don't think we've gotten the whole story. Um, there's a lot of people, both liberal and conservative, pro-cop and pro-protester, who think they know the answers. I don't know the answers. And I don't think any of us do yet. But there is enough complication in that, how all that went down that you got to say that a, a police force that actually knew its community better probably could have reacted more quickly or could have called in the help they needed more quickly. Um, that, that wouldn't have, cause, because a lot of this was turf, this was different jurisdictions and, 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 um, you had a force that because it was external, uh, the closest people they had to work with are their core. You know, the, this is any institution when it becomes insular. I've seen this in political organizations in small towns when the councils become insular. They don't talk to outside people. They don't get outside perspective. They only talk to each other. That gets, uh, that puts people in a bind and you're, you're going to make mistakes, maybe even really bad mistakes if you, if your organization does that. So that's what I see, you know, and that's where good local, a good local strategy implemented years ago might've, might've prevented this from happening or at least having it happen in Minneapolis. I'd layer on top of that a whole bunch of things. There's a fantastic book called Rise of the Warrior Cop. It's by a guy named Radley Balco. And I would encourage everybody listening to go get this book. It describes in chilling detail all of the things that were done to militarize local police forces. We talk about the military surplus stuff being sold and, you know, local cities having tanks and armored personnel carriers. And like, we look at that as obscene and over the top, but, but the real pernicious stuff is not only giving them military grade weapons, but portions of military training and military bearing. So that as, as Aaron was saying, you know, you look at this in a military sense as like an occupying force subduing uh, people from a military standpoint. I was in the army and I was a truck driver. So I was not like a, an infantryman. I was not trained special forces, none of that stuff. I got rudimentary rifle training, but even in rudimentary rifle training, you are taught, you never point your rifle at anything you don't intend to kill. And you can see people, you know, where they show military confrontations, where people are pointing weapons. You, once you've pointed a weapon, you've decided that I'm okay with this person dying. I'm okay with ending this person's life. And if they don't do exactly what I'm telling them to do in this moment, their life will be over. That's what a military use of force is all about. When we bring that to civilian life, I saw back in Ferguson, these pictures of Cops pointing weapons at people with their hands up, kneeling on the ground, laying on the ground. There was a photo the other day from one of these recent ones with a, a police officer pointing a weapon at a man with a baby on top of his head. We have given local police forces militarization 
in terms of their tactics and in terms of their weapons, but we have not given them militarization in terms of the morals and the, the level of engagement that they're supposed to have. We don't walk around in the military just pointing weapons at people that we, you know, are disobeying us or don't like us. If you pick your weapon and point it at someone, you've crossed a mental threshold in terms of the way you view that person's life. And the fact that this is a routine occurrence, something that just goes on and on as a matter of course in local policing, it, it is deeply disturbing and it should be deeply disturbing to conservatives as much as it is to liberals. This is not the way our founding fathers envisioned police forces in this country working. It's not how I think anybody, you, you go back to the debates over whether we should have an FBI or not and whether they should carry weapons or not and what their role is. We have gotten to the point where we now nationalized, you know, called out the military nationwide for the first time since like 1807 or something like that. If that doesn't create alarm bells, I don't know what will. I'm going to say something here and I, I don't, I realize that I maybe have been a little bit dire in this conversation, I think maybe this time calls for it. But Erin and I once had a fascinating conversation on the air. It was fascinating for me uh, about the Russian Revolution and just the implications of it. Erin said something that I've thought about a lot. It really stuck with me. He said the Russian Revolution would have been like one day the president was running the country or one day the czar was running the country. And the next day, the guys from 7-Eleven or the Holiday Station store were there running the country. That was the radical level of change. I think as someone watching this as a bystander and understanding how fragile our local communities are, understanding how fragile our economy is, how fragile our system of government is, how this inequality has just kind of ground us down, the idea that we could wake up tomorrow with a different form of government seems like insane to us, like it seems beyond our capacity to believe or understand. But literally, that has happened over and over and over again throughout human history. And when I watched the U.S. Army being mobilized around the entire country, that's what comes to my mind is like we've reached a place where the outcomes for here may be a tamping down or a, a ramping down of things, maybe, but the idea that something radical or crazy or epoch shifting would happen is certainly on the table at this moment. And that, that's difficult to ponder in my mind. There was a story I just saw today, um, a retired CIA analyst saying that the events of the past week, if this was a foreign country and, and it was his job to monitor foreign countries and their domestic situations, we would have been flagged as a political overthrow. Yeah, we would have been flagged as a monitor this very closely. We might have new leadership here in the near future because of the it wasn't just the people in the streets. It's the reaction of the people at the top. And as as people lose a mandate to govern, they lose their effectiveness. Crazy things happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they can't control what's happening anymore, both because of the people, the opposition, the protesters who might not even be armed. But but their own their own means of you know doing things. I mean, are we confident that the military will, if if sent into cities to put down a riot, can we be confident anymore that the military will do exactly as ordered, uh, especially if it appears very political? That was my question. We called out the entire National Guard here in Minnesota. I was in the National Guard. 
My first question was, do these people have bullets? I remember when I was in my advanced training in Missouri, we were sent overnight to guard the post exchange, you know, where you can go and buy cigarettes and pop or whatever. And it was like an exercise. They were teaching you how to do guard duty. Well, they gave you a rubber gun. I mean, from a distance, it would have looked like an M16, but up close, it was like a floppy rubber gun. I'm like, are we sending these people out with bullets? Or are we sending them out with rubber guns? And the answer was, we're sending them out with bullets. Like they're staying in the industry with bullets. So the next question is, is the Minnesota National Guard going to start shooting Minnesotans? Like is, because clearly if you're there to guard the Capitol and the mob is rushing the Capitol, are they authorized to shoot and kill people? Well, that is something that is, let, let me put it this way in a, in a more frivolous setting. Having raised daughters, I have learned very clearly that you don't draw lines. You don't draw lines that you, you know, are going to defend till the end, unless it's like the most serious line. But as soon as you draw lines, they like go across it. And then you're left with, okay, what do I do? Do I smack down this errant kid and put them in their place? Or do I bend on my line? And the reality is, is that as a good parent, you just don't draw lines like that because you know their confrontation points. Well, the governor doesn't have that option, right? Like he's in the Capitol. He's got to have military around the Capitol. Do they shoot people? And so you can see how, to me, this is the, the way that I view things. If you go back to 2008, when George Bush and Hank Paulson and Nancy Pelosi stood there and said, we need a trillion dollars to give to the banks or there won't be food on the shelves in 48 hours. My reaction to that was, is that even pot? Like, you're telling me like that's in play right now? Like we could have mass riots and starvation because the banking system broke? That's a much more fragile system than anybody thought. We're actually at a point right now where like, if a couple things go wrong, a lot of bad, bad stuff happens very, very quickly. And so, you know, we've put like chess pieces on the table that are just increasing the level of volatility and instability and craziness without really any, I think, awareness and certainly no kind of like thought or coordination or long-term plan or like strategy about how this plays out. It seems very, very defensive. And in, in looking at, you know, that, that CIA analyst, I read that same piece, you, you, you look historically at that and that is like the hallmark of regime failure, of places completely falling apart. And this is the United States. We're the world's reserve currency. We're the largest economy in the world. We're the most affluent country in the history of civilization. The idea that we would go from three years ago having Russians disrupt our election with tweets and Facebook posts to now like imploding and feeding in on ourselves, you know, this is like bin Laden's dream of what would happen to us when he took down two buildings. We have become the thing we said we would not become. And I think the painful thing for me is to sit on the sidelines and watch it and recognize that not only am I powerless to stop it, but really it's seemingly anyone is powerless to stop it. You earlier, Chuck, were talking about the militarization of our small town police forces. And, and there's lots of examples of this. Um, uh, every Hibbing Police Department officer, for instance, was issued a, an assault rifle, essentially, and, and that they would have in the event of what I can only presume would be a military uh, uh, exercise of some kind involving, well, frankly, a riot. And my only thought on that was the old saying, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Because, you, you know, we got all kinds of social unrest up there in Hibbing. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Well, it's been really interesting because we had curfews in Hibbing and Virginia a few nights ago. And you tried to get the like, well, the curfews, they said there's credible threats against these towns. And I'm like, okay, let's look into it. Where are the credible threats? Like, what are these? And, and, and now a few days later, we can look back and say, it looked like just internet rumors. It looked like just a bunch of stuff that like people who threatened, uh, oh, we're going to go to the small towns and get them, that kind of thing, which now we're finding out we're actually not from the leftist organizations, but were false flags put out by the by other different kinds of organizations, all to create unrest. But when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I'm going to use an example. This is I hope this is not too cute for this for the topic. But my grandfather was a Kewatin City police officer back in the 1950s and very early 1960s. He was the town cop in the little town, little sleepy Iron Range town. And uh, he carried certain equipment with him. He had a gun and he had, you know, the badge and the hat. And he had uh, a baton of sorts. It's It was a lead ball wrapped in leather and then bound tightly in a leather handle. Anyway, you'd whap people with this if you needed to. And he told me he, he did a couple times have to whap a guy uh, with it. And as a young boy, and I was his first grandson. All he wanted was a son. He got six daughters and then a granddaughter. And then, then I came along. And so he always would take me and, you know, try to impart every part of his life on me. And I, I, we grew very close. But as a far too young a child, he decided he was going to give me this baton as something that I would have as a small boy with two young sisters. I was going to have this riot control baton in my possession. And my mother was furious. And she said, he's, he can't have that. You know, he's going to hit his sisters with that. And I swore, oh, no, no I am never, ever going to hit my sisters with this. But I'm never going to do it. Never. I don't know how long it was. Maybe a week later, I hit one of my sisters with it. And it was gone. I got it taken away forever. I think it got thrown out because it was gone. Now, I was a child. And you can say that I was just a child doing things. But... I, I think when you have the tools of riot suppression in your possession, everything that that becomes escalated looks like it could become a riot. But, you know, there are always two directions when things escalate. They don't have to escalate to the next level. They could, in fact, be arrested here and brought back down. And And I think certain parts of the country were much more successful in keeping protests from becoming riots in part because of de-escalation rather than escalation. Now, there, like I said, there's stuff we don't know about how those early nights of looting and burning in Minneapolis happened. I would love to know more about some of that. But it appeared like there were peaceful protests happening, uh, surrounded by Minneapolis police, and then at some point the fear or the whatever skipped the tracks and... Police overreacted on one side of town and then other people, maybe some of the same people, maybe different people, that started tearing the city down with very little police protection in places where that was happening. Far too late to do any good to protect the, the, the homes and businesses that were affected. This is the thing. I've never felt I'm really angry about a problem in this country. I'm going to take a brick and I'm going to throw it through the window of an institution because I'm so mad. I, I don't think that way. But when I see police marching on the street or, or riot patrols or militaristic units storming through the streets where I might have bought a cup of coffee two days earlier, 
I want to pick up a brick and throw it through a window. This is me talking as a person. And this is how people who live in those communities feel. How would you feel if it was your community? How would I feel if there were military units deployed at my place of work or at the gas station where I got my gas and they were looking over everybody coming in and out? I'd resent them. I might throw a brick. Who knows what I'd do? Because I'm mad. This is part of the thing that we're missing. And there's a way to de-escalate and a way to address the concerns in a way that that could be much more productive. And, and I hope we get there. But boy, these last few days and weeks have been tough. The more we treat this as a military occupation, the more we will have a military occupation, the more we'll have an insurgency. If I'm going to get the last word, I, I'm, I'm going to say this in a way that I don't want this to be political. So please don't read too much into this. But the, you know, the more we focus on the presidency and the top down and who can we defeat to get our person in place as if that will just make all of these systematic bottom up things right. I think the more we are focusing our efforts in the wrong place, the more we focus on each other, on our neighborhoods, and I'm the conservative, I'm going to say this, the more we can love other people. You know, I do think that there's a little bit of holding hands and, and hippie-ish kind of discounting of that that we often do. Um, but the reality is, is we need to, you know, instead of having the the hammer be the militarization of our country, have the hammer be, let's default to looking at each problem, each nail as like a human and a human suffering and a human complexity that really needs a human touch to it, as opposed to something that, you know, we can just put through the, the, the grinder, which has been our kind of top-down efficient way to solve problems for, for decades and decades and decades. As always with Dig Deep, with Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone, we want your feedback. You can email comments at kexe.org and sign up for that Dig Deep podcast. It's at our website, kexe.org. I'm Heidi Holton, and I thank you for listening to this Dig Deep. We are member-supported, we're small, we're independent, a national public radio affiliate, bringing you the voices of the people who live in northern Minnesota, talking about big issues like what we've been hearing from Chuck and Aaron in this hour. We need your support. That's how a station like this has existed for over 44 years. We're in a tough time right now, and we continue to need your support to make our budget. You can go to kexe.org to become a member or give a donation now. We thank you for listening to Dig Deep. For more information on Aaron Brown, you can go to minnesotabrown.com or Chuck Marone, go to strongtowns.org.